0: This blue thing that I brought up here with me this morning as a hymn book. Some of you may not know that. But I want to read to you a little bit of that song we just sang. I text Larry this week. He was on vacation in South Padre. Um, and I told him, I said, this song, Be Thou My Vision, I would like for us to do Sunday. I know you're on vacation, but this is more important. And um, this this would be a good song. And the reason is because of verse 3 of this song. So I I don't know if you caught it, but because I've been studying the subject matter all week, I caught it and I want to highlight it to you. Be Thou My Vision is one of my favorite hymns. And in verse 3 it says this, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Which is essentially just a fancy way of saying, riches are nothing to me, man's praise is nothing to me, but You, Jesus, You're everything to me. You're my inheritance. You're my treasure. And the verse goes on to say that, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart. High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art the beautiful poem beautiful words put together but very startling isn't it can we say that about the lord from our own heart that compared to riches and people's praises and the things that this world has to offer you jesus are the treasure of my heart and you're enough and you're all that i need and it's because of the first line of verse four high king of heaven my victory won Christ won the victory at the cross on our behalf. And because of that, He is the treasure of our hearts, church. And all that this world has to offer, all the vain things, all the riches, all the praise, all the influence, all the the power, and and all all the lies that are out there, they don't compare to Jesus. He is our great inheritance. And so next time we sing, Be Thou My Vision, maybe you'll remember those lines and you'll sing them with, passion and desire uh, lord i so want this to be true of me that you above everything else you are the treasure of my heart because you have won my victory such a wonderful wonderful message if you would let me pray and we'll get into today's text lord we sing songs all the time every week sometimes some of us multiple times a week and I pray that we would be a people who think about and believe with conviction and zeal what we're singing. I so desire You to be the treasure of our hearts. We know without a doubt, Lord, nothing compares to You and knowing You. That's what, that's what Your Word says in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss in comparison to, to knowing You, Jesus. You are the great treasure. And sometimes, Lord, we, we buy into the lies. Sometimes we trade what is good for what is lesser. Help us to see that You are not only our treasure, but our only hope. That we cling to You with all our might. That we are indeed guilty people, yet covered by Your blood, under Your grace and mercy, under Your love. Remind those who are hurting this morning, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to You. Remind those who are strong in Your grace today to remember Your grace as a gift. And remind us all, Lord, that the vain things of this world can melt away as long as we have You. Bless this time. Help us to understand Your Word with clarity and be drawn and moved towards You. In Jesus' name, Amen. I would invite you to take your Bibles with me and open them back to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 16. Gospel of Luke, Chapter 16. As we come to yet another difficult passage of Scripture from the mouth of our Lord. And I was so excited I told you Uh, Even starting out in the Gospel of Luke, however many years ago it's been now, uh, about chapter 15, it's coming up, it's coming up, it's coming up. It's a wonderful text because the Lord is conveying how He deals with sinners and relates to them and delights in doing so. God delights in the Gospel. But in my joy of chapter 15, I forgot chapter 16 is right after it. Chapter 16 is hard. Remember last week we come to this very difficult parable verse 1 through verse 13, where Jesus is using some unique uh, abilities and skills to convey a truth, things that are kind of out of the ordinary for Him in His uh, methods. And yet, we came to find out the truth of that parable is essentially, don't waste your life on the things of this world, but invest in eternity. Make eternal friends. Uh, ultimately, coming down to verse 13, you can't serve Two masters, our memory verse for this quarter. Because either you're going to hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. And ultimately, that parable is about discipleship with a choice on the horizon, choose who you're going to follow, God or fill in the blank, right? Any any kind of idol. Now from that parable, it would have flowed quite nicely if Luke would have picked up in verse 19. Because verse 19, we come to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We know that parable. A rich man dies. Lazarus is poor. He dies. the rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man says, I'm tormented. I, you know, I send people back to believe these kind of things. And essentially, it flows nicely because we could say, don't be like the rich man who invested in the things of this world and yet got nothing in the life to come. It would be like Lazarus, who though he may not have had anything in this life, invested his heart in eternity and God welcomed him into heaven. So the the flow would have been nice. We could have said, choose who you're going to serve. Don't invest in worldly things. Invest in eternal things. Here's an example. The rich man and Lazarus. But Luke doesn't do that. He interjects this teaching of the Lord. And the Lord actually is interjecting this teaching that is somewhat difficult to piece together in the context of everything. Why are you saying what you're saying where you're saying it? You remember back into chapter 15, I hope, verse 2, we find who the Lord's been addressing, Pharisees and scribes, and He's addressing them because they're grumbling that He's receiving and eating with sinners and, and tax collectors. And so, All of this takes place, chapter 15 and chapter 16, and depending on how you view it, chapter 17, but at least 15 and 16, all of this takes place in one context, one setting, one teaching. And he goes from Pharisees in chapter 15, disciples, believers in chapter 16, back to Pharisees in chapter 16, verse 14, and interjecting in this cohesive teaching, uniform teaching, these thoughts, chapter 16, verse 14 through 18. And they're somewhat difficult to interpret. And they're somewhat difficult to apply into this context. And we do have this natural question. Why are they here where they're at? Not just what they're saying. Which is most important. But why are they in this location? Because the Lord doesn't do anything that's wrong. And Luke and his inspired gospel here. Doesn't include anything that's wrong. So what is Jesus doing, what's the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to do in these few verses? Well, I think once we look at them, I hope they'll make sense. I think what we come to find in these verses 14 through 18 is the Lord addressing one of the most common and worst problems of the human heart. And it's the faulty thinking that you can gain entrance into heaven or the kingdom of God through good behavior or works righteousness. I think that's what we come to find. These people, these individuals who think that external behavior matters more than internal heart. And Jesus is going to spend these few verses explaining why why that's not the case. Your external behavior does not matter more than your heart. The reality of your heart. Now don't hear me wrong, external behavior is important, right? God calls us to holiness and obedience and good works and to avoid doing sinful things. But what matters most to God, according to Christ, is the reality of your heart. Who you are on the inside. That has been a temptation for humanity all of human history, right? We're prone to think that our actions matter more than our hearts. In fact, if you go up to anybody on the street, and we encountered this in Denver at our church plant and other places, you go up to them and you ask them if they believe in God and they say yes. Believe in life after death, they say yes. You believe in heaven, yes. What's going to get you there? Well, I think I've been a good person. And that's the pretty standard answer everywhere I've been. I think I've done enough good things. It's very rarely an answer that issues from the heart. Right. It's always action oriented. Some theologians would say that's because God designed us that way. If you would agree, uh, there's this belief and thought out there that God made a covenant of works with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that covenant said, you, you work, that's a good thing, work the garden, but also... If you be obedient to me, you'll live forever and enjoy the garden forever and my presence forever. And what happened is Adam and Eve broke that covenant by disobeying God. They didn't live up to their end of the works bargain. And if that's the case, if you want to believe that, you could maybe make the case that we're created to work and do things. We're action oriented people. And if that's the case, it explains why we're so prone to still think that. That I need to just do a bunch of good stuff and earn God's favor that way and then I'll be set for eternity. In fact, faith is a difficult thing, isn't it? And what makes you feel good about your assurances with Jesus is that I'm doing good things. But that's not the Gospel. Although good things are a byproduct, that's not the way that we're saved, is it? Because of one glaring problem. And you know what that problem is, right? We're guilty... In our hearts, we're not just guilty in our actions or lack thereof, we're guilty from the core. And that's a problem and an obstacle that external righteousness or behavior righteousness cannot address. The fact that it's not just what you do or don't do, it's what you think, it's what you desire, it's the motives behind your actions. Those are the things that also make you guilty. And in fact, it's even more than that. Just like we read in Ephesians chapter 2. We are by nature children of wrath. So, so don't, don't bottle sin up, condemning sin up to just the things we do or don't do or think or don't think. It's also who you are in your core because of Adam. Because of the sin of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. We're by nature Sinful. Prone to sin. Therefore, the problem that's glaring with external righteousness is the inward guilt that each one of us has. What do we do about the inward guilt? Because ultimately, and won't you agree with me, God looks on the inside and sees and finds guilt. And we don't stack up. Side note, isn't that what makes the Gospel so glorious? In fact, if we're not guilty, the Gospel doesn't have a whole lot of significance for us, right? But the fact that we are guilty and recognize our guilt makes the Gospel wonderful. That God would die for guilty people? In fact, you know these verses, but I want to read them because the Bible says it better than I can. Romans 5 verse 6 Paul says this, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We've talked about this verse a number of times already. The ungodly being those who are opposite of God. So God dies for those who are the exact opposite of Him. In character, in morality, in, in divinity, in, in all these ways. Verse 7, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God... Since he's not like anybody, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That church is the beauty of the gospel. That, yeah, we're guilty. God knows our guilt and dies for us, anyways. Except that's not what the Pharisees realize in this text. And that's not what we're prone to realize in our lives. We're prone to realize we're imperfect. Perhaps we would admit to guilt. We make mistakes. So I have to correct it myself. God says you can't because it's an internal matter and I have to correct it for you. I think that's what we come to consider today in these few verses. Jesus explaining why your external works will never gain you entrance into the kingdom of God. Look with me in chapter 16, verse 14. So right on the heels of this parable of the dishonest manager where Jesus says essentially don't overvalue money. Instead, invest in your eternity. Make eternal friends. The Pharisees hear this. Verse 14, The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits Adultery. Alright, so we kind of get verse 14 and 15 pretty easily, but what does the rest of this stuff mean? It's going to take some time to dissect. But we can break this text up as most people do. Verse 14 and 15 go together. Verse 16 and 17 go together. And then verse 18 can tie back into 16 and 17. So that's how we'll take it this morning. If you look first in verse 14 and 15, highlighting why external righteousness does not save... The first point is that God sees the heart. God sees your heart. Look in verse 14. We need to remember who we're addressing here. It's the Pharisees. Remember verse 2 of chapter 15. That's ha- how the context, the conversation, the teaching began with Jesus. Then in chapter 16, verse 1, we take a break and we address believers. And now in verse 15, we pick back up with unbelievers, with Pharisees, with people who think they know God, but they really don't know God. They are, as Paul would define them, zealously confused. If you look in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, you find a very, very good description of these individuals. Paul, being a former Pharisee, obviously knows his fellow former Pharisees. In verse 9, he's just finished that chapter, verse 30 through the end of the chapter, talking about Israel's unbelief. And in verse ten, or verse 1 of chapter 10, he's explaining these people and his desire for them to be saved. Verse twenty he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, Israelites, Jews, Pharisees, is that they may be saved. And then he says this about them in verse 2, "For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Paul saying, "I know these people, I know my fellow countrymen, my my kinsmen, and they are passionate and zealous and eager and excited for God. But they are all those things in ignorance. Not according to truth. They've developed their own system, their own rules, their own law. The Mishnah is just over 600 Jewish rules to follow that they think makes them righteous. Paul says, "I, I know they have a burning desire for God, but it's all misguided verse 3 being ignorant of the righteousness of God they seek to establish their own they want righteousness they want to be right in God's eyes they want to be in heaven but they're going all about it all the wrong way those are the people we encounter in verse 14 it's a very good clue into who Jesus is visiting with, why they're they're hard-hearted, and why He has to be uh, so shocking with them. There are these passionate, zealous individuals who think they are acting on God's behalf, establishing their own righteousness by obeying the law, but in reality, Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs, cleaning the outside of the cup and the dish, but not the inside. They're corrupted and full of dead men's bones on the inside. There are people who are externally wanting to be seen as godly, but they know on the inside they're they're not even close. Then Luke in verse 14 issues this, I don't know, staggering statement concerning them. And, you know, Holy Spirit inspired letter here. Jesus in the conversation context, He would agree as well. These are the Pharisees who were talking to in verse 14, who were lovers of money. And uh, for us, that just seems to be a casual categorization for them. But really, it's incredibly condemning because of verse 13. Luke would automatically have us draw back into the context. Verse 13, he just said, you can't serve God and money. You have to pick. And verse 14, he says, these guys pick money. They're lovers of money, which by association means they're not lovers of God. They want to be, think they are, but they are not. We can take money out like we talked about last week and plug in any idol there. Anything you elevate above God in your life, you can fill in the blank for your own self. You could be a lover of anything, which would mean you're not a lover of God. Now that's the people Jesus is going to address here in verse 14. Pharisees, passionate think they're doing what is right, even have some cause in Deuteronomy, misguided cause, to think persecuting Jesus is the right thing, that they're really not lovers of God. They hear all these things in verse 14 and they ridicule Jesus. So Luke is giving us the answer really back to the parable on chapter 16. is a parable about money. Here are some people who love money so much that they hear Jesus teaching and they ridicule Him. It means to mock him or scoff him, scoff at him. I thought of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the law of the Lord he meditates both day and night. These are not those people. These are the people sitting in the seat of scoffers. These are the scoffing ones who hear the Word of God from the mouth of God and ridicule him for it it tells us something else about the Pharisees. They're so influenced by worldliness that when they hear Jesus teach, they think He's crazy. And they write Him off. What a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And do not think we are not prone to be there ourselves, church. For here are religious people who think they know God and are hearing God teach, and are so influenced by the world, they think He's out of His mind. And that happens when we start letting the world define what's important to us, and not God. Never, never ought we to get those things backwards. Now for these Pharisees, we also know something else from their history. They saw money as a blessing for righteousness. So they would go back to the Old Testament and they would look at guys like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and others who God seemed to bless financially, Job. And they would say, that must be what you get if you're righteous. It is an ancient form of the prosperity gospel that if God likes you, He's going to give you lots of stuff. That's what they believed. It was around a lot earlier than Joel Osteen. These Pharisees thought that. They're believing that. And so they spend their time seeking wealth. That's why we give them the categorization here from Luke that they're lovers of money because they wanted that confirmation of their own personal righteousness. They're sinfully pursuing an idol. And that has blinded them to the point where they are influenced by the world, no longer can hear the words of God speak and ridicule Jesus' teaching well we come to Jesus speaking in verse 15 and this is out of chapter 15 and 16 this verse is the if I can use a boxing analogy the right hook of all that Jesus has said it's the uh, uppercut that's going to end the match in verse 15 Jesus looks at them and he he issues this statement that is Shocking and startling at the same time. And I mean those in two different ways. It's shocking because of its reality. And it's startling because of its application. And he has three focal points in here that are going to issue that shock and startling realization. We ought to also highlight here that we are having a word of rebuke and condemnation come from the mouth of Jesus Himself. That's significant. Because here's the final judge, the final ruler, the Lord, the authority, issuing His understanding and assessment of these individuals. The first thing He says to them is condemning in nature. You are those who justify yourselves before men. Now that phrase there, you are those, is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because he doesn't say you are people who justify yourselves before men. You are those who justify yourself before men. You're those we've warned everybody about. You're those we've seen fall over and over and over again through the Old Testament. You're those who God has always said, I oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. You're those. You're those individuals. And your crowning failure is that you justify yourselves before men. It tells us that the opinions and thoughts of mankind mattered more to these Pharisees than ultimately the thoughts of God. And I would say most of us would find ourselves there. We do live and act and behave and are prone to be tempted to live and act and behave in light of what somebody else may think of us, instead of living, acting, behaving for the approving smile of our Lord. So much more joy and confidence and assurity comes when you know Christ is approving of you and confirming you than when mankind does. And why is that? Because being a people-pleasing person means you're living for the thoughts and approval of men, which are flippant. If you are a people pleaser, that's a nicer way of saying what you really are. You're a slave to the opinions of humanity. And you're a slave because you'll never live up. All throughout Acts and all throughout the ministry of Jesus, and even in today's time, we find the masses and the crowds changing their opinions just like that. They approve of one thing one moment and the next thing they don't. And if you're living for their approval and their praise, you're never going to catch up your slave. These guys are slaves, Christ says. You're slaves to your reputation. You're slaves to the approval of mankind. In other parts of the Gospel, Jesus would say, the Pharisees, they're praying on the street corners to be seen by others. And everything they do is to be seen by others. Don't be like them. There's not liberty there. There's not freedom there. There's not the the enjoyment of being who God created you to be confident in your identity in Christ. These guys are slaves. Don't be like them. Their reputation and the opinions of other people concerning their reputation is of their highest value. I do have to interject here. Your reputation does matter. There's this song on Christian radio. It drives me crazy. I have to turn it off every time it comes on because it's this individual singing, I don't care what people think about me. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says have a good reputation before outsiders so that they might not slander Christ. Don't demean the gospel with your actions. So we're not negating the importance of a godly reputation in the world shining as lights in darkness what we're saying here is these guys have it backwards where their reputation is the highest value in their life. And not just their reputation, but their reputation before men, not their reputation before God, not what God thinks of them. So the first focal point of the statement, verse 15, is Jesus' condemnation to them. You're those who justify yourselves before men. And then here's the right hook, but in contrast, shocking, startling, God knows your hearts. Now for us, we have the blessing of being on this side of the cross, outside of the New Testament. We get to believe Jesus is Christ, the the Son of God. We know that because of the New Testament. So we know Jesus is saying... This is about Himself as well. Christ knows your heart. But even for these Pharisees, that's an undeniable reality that would have shocked them back into realization if their hearts are at least slightly open to receiving God. They would have realized the God of the Old Testament, who is also, by the way, the God of the New Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who knows all things, who certainly knows the human heart. We've seen it over and over and over and over again. And these guys who are living for the applause of mankind would have been shocked to remember. That's right. God knows the heart. And that's what matters to Him. The literal language that Jesus uses right there is that God sees through you. That is so significant, isn't it? Because we are a people who put on masks constantly. A mask of being good enough. A mask of of having it all together. It's been a rough morning. Uh, We we know the typical Sunday routine for for most of us. Uh, I slept in. I'm in a hurry. My clothes aren't fitting. The kids are acting like crazy people. People. It's difficult to get here. It's difficult to have my heart prepared. It's difficult to listen because I stayed up too late the night before. I'm tired. It's difficult to sing because it doesn't mean anything to me. On and on and on and on and on. But I've got to put on this good show, right? This, this good appearance. I've got to put on my mask. Act like I've got it together. Act like I'm ready. Act like I'm in tune with the Lord. And on and on and on and on. And the reality is God sees right through you. God sees the heart. Every mask you and I put on that tricks one another is a clear mask to the eyes of God. Nothing is hidden from Him. The author of Hebrews echoes this sentiment in Hebrews chapter 4. In verse 12 and 13, verse 12, he's talking about the Word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart's And then he says this in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Now there's something going on in that verse. There's a lot going on in that verse. But let me just highlight a few things. He uses these words naked and exposed because there's no other way to communicate extreme vulnerability. When you and I are naked and exposed, we are incredibly vulnerable. Especially if we don't think we're supposed to be naked and exposed. And the author of Hebrews is saying you are vulnerable before the one whom you have to give an account to, which implies of finality implies lordship, implies judge, implies the one you have to answer to for everything you've done and everything you've thought and everything that goes on. God sees right through you and He's the one you have to give an account to. That's what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees. You want to know why external righteousness does not work and will not earn your way into heaven? it really is vain worthless pursuits it's because god sees the heart and measures you by your heart enter in again the problem we highlighted at the beginning we're guilty and we can appear to one another as not guilty we can appear to one another as having everything sugar coated and being a top-notch christian and the best guy since paul But in reality, God sees right through us, and we're guilty. Your thoughts, my thoughts, our desires, our motives, they're not only clearly known by God, they're easily known by God. Not only does He clearly and perfectly know your heart, it's easy for Him to see and understand it. Which means there's no secrets, no hiding, no tricking, no fooling. None of those things work. And again, I've said it before, but it's worth saying again, God measures you by what He sees in your heart. Yeah, your actions condemn you. My actions condemn me. Because they're sinful actions. But, when I stand before the judge, the account that I'm giving is the account of my heart. And our external righteousness at that point is Worthless. It doesn't, it doesn't influence in here. Or good habits or behavior. Whatever you want to classify it as. Then, Jesus in verse 15. My goodness, we're taking a long time. Then in verse 15, Jesus issues this third focal point of the statement that is both condemning and startling. He says, For what is exalted among men is an abomination... In the sight of God. If you're a math person, I'm not. But if you're a math person, you could simplify it and say, whatever's valued by the world is hated by God. Valued by world equals hated by God. Same thing. Now, in the context of this passage, that immediately refers to money, doesn't it? That's perhaps one of the Most highly valued things in humanity, if not the most highly valued thing in humanity, your power, your influence, your success, all hinges in the world's eyes upon your wealth. You're successful if you're wealthy, not if you do a good job in raising godly children, it's if you have money in the bank account. Who cares about your kids? And so, in the immediate context, we can refer to money as an abomination when it's made the highest value. But also in the context, we could start plugging in reputation, stature, power, influence. All these things these Pharisees are immediately struggling with because of their love for money. But it's not just them, is it? It's us too, right? All the things we start putting more value in than what God does. All these things we start elevating to the stature of first-tier Issues in the world. It could be anything for us. A big fat retirement check. Or a nice house. Or a brand new car. Or whatever it may be. An expert in this field or that field. Because the word exalted in that phrase, what is exalted among men, could tie to what is made an idol among men. Is an abomination before God. Anything you begin to to pursue more than you pursue God, or like we sing in the song, Be Thou My Vision, anything you begin to treasure more than you treasure Christ is an abomination to God for two reasons. Because God alone is worthy, whether you believe in Him or not, God alone is worthy of all our devotion, all our adoration, all our worship, all our pursuits, all our time and energy, But also, for those of us that are believers, God is the only thing that will give you lasting joy and peace and freedom. Pursue your bank account. Pursue your new car. Pursue your new house. And let me tell you, at the end, it will be in vain. And you will be broken. And you'll be unsatisfied. But pursue Christ, and I promise you'll be satisfied for eternity. You'll find joy that doesn't get taken away easily. You'll find peace. When your family member dies, you'll sit back and you'll say, God, I'm in pain, but I thank You that You save. I can find joy in the hardest of places when we pursue Christ. So, anything exalted above God is an abomination to God. Abomination, we know that word, but just to be clear, it's the strongest word that Jesus could use for hate and detest. It's a frightening thought that the things we value might be the things God hates. Which makes me go back to what I said earlier. We cannot and must not let the world and society tell us what's important. Only Christ does that for us. That's a life lesson that we can take and pull out of that verse. The world, society, media, whatever, cannot, must not determine what's important for you and I. Only God does that. Only Christ. These Pharisees, they're clinging to money. They're following and pursuing an idol that's an abomination in God's eyes. They're clinging to their outward appearance and their self-righteousness and their reputation before men. And God says, all those things are foolish. They're detestable. You may trick other people, but you will never trick me. I see right through you. I see your heart. All that is is a breeding ground for hypocrisy. The Pharisees have failed to realize, and I hope we don't fail to realize this, Well, moving on, God sees the heart. That's why external righteousness is worthless because God's looking at your heart. And then, verse 16 and 17, the law is not void. Which means, God sees the heart and the heart is guilty because it doesn't live up to the law. Verse 16 and 17 are really difficult here. Let me just be honest. And because we're running out of time, I'm going to run through them. Feel free to ask questions later. But that's the gist of what Jesus is saying. You're lovers of money. You're pursuing things that are an abomination of the Lord. You're justifying yourselves before men. It's foolishness because God knows your heart and your heart is condemned by the law. Looking at verse 16. There are two times or, or two ages being expressed in verse 16. The law and the prophets uh, were until John. That's one age. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. That's another age. The law and the prophets, that's, let's look at that one first. That's kind of the time before the first age. When they're coupled together, that's a reference to the Old Testament as a whole. So we're not talking about the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, or just the law of Moses, or just the prophets. We're talking about them together. And that was a common way for New Testament people to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. Essentially, what Jesus is talking about in the context here is the time of promise, where God has promised communion with Himself and, and life and, and peace and, And forgiveness and ultimately a Savior. Redemption through that Savior. I would highlight a few verses to you, but we don't have time this morning. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promises a new age, a new covenant is coming. It's the time of promise. All these things are pointing to one who's to come to usher in something greater. And in that specific passage, Jeremiah 31, God says, no one will have to teach his neighbor because they're all going to know me. And I'm going to forgive all their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Praise God, that's where we live. And that's, the fulfillment of that is still coming. The second text that you need to know in regards to the time of promise and fulfillment is Joel chapter 2, verse 28-32. through you find Joel saying in that passage, God speaking through him, inspiring him. And he says there, uh, your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. All these things are going to happen. He comes down to the end of that and he says, and every na- everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, what makes Joel 2 so remarkable is Acts 2. If that passage sounds familiar, it's because... Peter quotes it word for word in his very first sermon since receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We call it a sermon at Pentecost. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit has come and divided tongues as a fire are resting on the apostles. They're speaking and everybody from all these different parts are hearing in their own language and they're starting to say, this is awesome. Some are saying, those guys are drunk. Other guys are saying, these, these guys are lunatics. They're just babbling about and Peter stands up and he says, hey, listen, Nobody's drunk here. Let me tell you what's happening. And he quotes Joel too. And he says, God has promised this and this is what you are seeing. Essentially, he's saying the time has come. What's even more remarkable is at the end of the Joel quote, he comes down and he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he goes on to say, Jesus is that Lord, but the word he uses for Lord is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. And the time has come through Him. Paul's going to echo the same thought in Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a Son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. The time has come, and it's come through Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying in verse 16. There were the time of the law and the prophets, the time of promise, but now... The good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Like Peter says, like uh, Paul says in Galatians, like Christ is saying here, it's now the inauguration of the kingdom. The ushering in of the new covenant with Jesus Christ where we are redeemed through His blood. He's the final sacrifice. The God of, of the universe dwells within us through His Holy Spirit. We have perfect fellowship with God. No more need for a temple. We are the temple. No more need for a priesthood. We are priests now through Christ. No more need for a mediator. Christ is our mediator. It's this new covenant. And, and that's the glory of, of, of verse 16. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. You have the gift of grace. That good news. What, what is that good news you're talking about, Jesus? It's, it's the gift of grace and mercy and atonement and the sacrifice of of Christ. The forgiveness of your sins. It's a gospel. The gospel of the kingdom is here now. Problem is people don't get it. People don't get it here. The Pharisees aren't getting it here. People don't get it today. And instead. They try to force their way into it. Now here's the confusion. Bear with me just for a moment and then I'll start summarizing. The confusion of this whole text hinges upon that final phrase at the end of verse 16. Everyone forces his way into it. What is it? And what does force mean? Some will say it means kingdom of God. Already referenced. Some will say it means uh, the good news of the kingdom. We'll probably just take it as the kingdom of God. And then we have the question, what does it mean forces his way into it? Lots of confusion and very little confidence from the guys that I read concerning what this says. On top of that, most guys want to translate it differently so that they can better explain it. Which, if I knew Greek that well, I would too. Some guys want to come to it and they say it means pressing in. Everyone presses their way into the kingdom. Others will take it how the English Standard Version translates it. That's what I'm reading from. Everyone forces his way into it. Others still, there's a footnote at my Bible, probably one of yours too. Others still might say it, it means more everyone is forcefully urged into it. That's an easier explanation if that's what it says. I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible says everyone is urged to enter it. Like compelled. and each, each Bible translation seems to have a different rendering. Some want to explain the force part as highlighting the difficulty of getting into the kingdom. And we've talked about that in Luke. That's plausible, right? Uh, broad is the way of destruction and Jesus has "Enter through the narrow gate. It's difficult. So some would say the force means the difficulty of entering the kingdom in the sense of sacrifice. Christ has already said that about disciples. Those who follow me are going to, Luke chapter 9, take up their cross and follow me. Sacrifice. So it means self-denial to the point of repentance that allows you in the kingdom. Others still want to say it's not what you do. It's not you forcing your way into the kingdom, but it's you being forced into the kingdom. So the gospel takes over, you don't have a choice, you're kind of drug into the kingdom. I get all of those. Everyone agrees, it's not saying Jesus is not saying you have to earn your way in. Everybody agrees with that. But not everybody agrees with what is actually being said. Now I'm going to issue you some caution this morning because I'm not going with any of those guys. None of those suffice for me personally. And so I'm going to give you what I think it's saying. And I'm going to say, be cautious here. Be good Bereans and go study it yourself. Don't just blindfully digest everything. So, um, if you stand before the Lord and He said you got this verse wrong, it's on you. Everyone forces his way into it. I take to be a negative statement. And I do take it and agree with the ESV that it's translated. Everyone forces his way into it. Although I'm not going to be dogmatic about that. I take it as a negative statement for two reasons. First, because of verse 17. Jesus says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. There's a contrast taking place. Verse 17 is a contrast to verse 16. So here's the glory of verse 16. Here's what's happening. But here's the contrast. And we know the first part of verse 16 isn't to be contrasted. It's absolute truth. The time of promise was then. The time of fulfillment is now. So verse 17, the contrasting nature, I take to mean the end of verse 16 is negative in its nature. Also, the context is corrective in nature. We're addressing Pharisees who are needing to be corrected. And there's nothing to be corrected in the fact that the two Ages are different now. The age of promise and the age of, of fulfillment has come. What needs to be corrected from verse seventeen is again the end, and and these Pharisees need that correction. On top of that, knowing the audience and the corrective nature of the passage, the Pharisees are doing that very thing. They are trying to force their way into the kingdom with their works. They are working diligently putting on a good outer appearance to work and earn and work and earn and i think what christ is saying in verse 17 is but it's easier for the created universe to dissolve than for you to bypass the law everyone has this good news preached the fulfillment that's been that's been promised for centuries and now is finally here and proclaimed in jesus christ but you don't get it. And if I could paraphrase Jesus, He's saying you're, you're still trying to force your way into it instead. Instead of hearing and receiving the gift and believing, you're trying to force your way onto God and into the kingdom and it's never going to work. And why is it not going to work? Because not one dot from the law will become void. Heaven and earth will pass away. The Bible says that. And it will pass away before the law is ever made void. And what does that mean? It means the law will keep you guilty. Where does our guilt come from? The fact that we don't measure up to God or the standards set by God. I was going to read to you a bunch of verses from Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3. Just believe me when I say, Paul's saying that whole time, you don't live up, you don't meet the law. It's our, our instrument of condemnation. We're under a curse. Until Christ became a curse for us. And even today, the purpose of the law is still to remind us that we need a Redeemer. And it's still to drive us into uh, seeing Jesus as Savior. We don't write off the Ten Commandments because Christ has come. We look at them to remember our sin. And the glory of Jesus in forgiving us. And I think that's what Christ is saying here. These Pharisees, they fail to realize that they cannot force their way into God's kingdom by externally keeping the law because the law makes them guilty. And it is not void. They need the Messiah. And then verse 18, I'll wrap up by summarizing, is the example of that. Believe me when I say that in this time, verse 18, they were permitting divorce for a number of very horrible reasons. The Pharisees particularly were doing this from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4. They're saying divorce is okay, and they're getting a lot of divorce, and Jesus is majoring on the fact here that divorce and remarriage are not part of God's design, and you can even keep that portion of the law. Law is not void. Let me show you an example of that: divorce and remarriage. In other places, Christ even ties marriage. Back to the law? No, back to creation. Back to Adam and Eve. United together as one flesh. And he's saying you can't even keep that. The law shows your guilt. So let me summarize by saying this. I've used that word a lot this morning. The truth of the text is this. You live externally. You think things like money, reputation, and influence. Matter. You think your external righteousness will gain you entrance into God's kingdom, but God sees your heart. That you are guilty, you reject the Christ, you fail to see the good news and the laws condemning you. All of those things are made clear in the very next parable. When the rich man interacts with Lazarus and Abraham... The law is not void. And God sees your heart. And that's a recipe for our guilt. What do we do about that? Well, obviously, it's not work externally. Try to be a better person. That's what these Pharisees are doing. That's what Christ is getting on to. The answer is verse 16. The good news of the kingdom of God. That Christ. Was sacrificed on the cross for our sins to be our atonement. How do we avoid this trap? We turn to the gospel in faith. We preach it to ourselves over and over and over again that it's not about how I feel when I repent, it's not about what I do when I repent, it's not about how I uh, respond to my sin with my actions. It's about coming to Christ with brokenness and humility and faith. It's about believing the gospel. Back to what I said. Our guilt that Christ is proclaiming to these Pharisees here makes that good news of the kingdom glorious. And it's offered freely to us as a gift. Jesus would save us. Even though the law is not void and even though He sees the filth and guilt of our heart, the good news is still preached. And salvation and redemption is still available. And the Savior delights in saving. That is the only answer to the guilt of our hearts under the law. That's the only answer plausible account we can give to the One who sees our hearts and sees us naked and exposed. It's the only way we enter into eternity with Christ. The only truth that matters for us. If that's the case, let's cast off everything that's exalted above God. If that's the case, let's not serve some other Master. Let's treasure the One who would see through us See our guilt under the law and provide a way of redemption anyways. And come to us Himself to bring about the new covenant and preach the good news of His kingdom. Let's treasure this King, this Jesus. Serve Him with gladness forever. Lord, so much needs to be said about this passage because this is what we all struggle with. And yet, only You can move in the heart in such a way that we would see and believe and understand and be transformed. We ask that You do move in such a way, Lord, for us to see, believe, and be transformed. Let us not be people who try to justify ourselves before one another, but to care more about what You think the God who sees our hearts at all moments and all times, and even in seeing us, guilty as we are under Your law, You still came for us. Praise be to You alone, Jesus, for loving us when we are unlovable. Thank You. And let us celebrate this Gospel truth this morning.